0: Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 233. My name is Terry Frost and this time around in this Carbon Neutral Podcast I'm going to be looking at two movie starring a character actor who died at the age of 43 but who had a bit of an impact on pop culture. The actor was Victor Buono, and the two movies of which I am about to speak are the 1964 film The Strangler and then we go on to 1971 for a movie called The Strangler of Venice, also known as The Mad Butcher. And each of them takes a very different approach to the art of strangulation. One of them's uh, a lot more serious than the other. One of them was filmed in America. The other was filmed in Europe. And um, nonetheless, they are quite interesting in their own way. Very quirky. Very dark in places. But worth checking out. So. I'll now get the contact details out of the way, and after that, we'll start talking about people putting their hands around the throats of other people. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old, and I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by MP3, or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language, so if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around. Unless you have incredibly hip children. Okay, so how have you been, people? Um, it's April. The weather has started turning colder. I believe it's still cold in the northern hemisphere. I was looking at a few people's Facebook feeds from various places like Minnesota and it's still looking a little bit like polar bear weather. So, weird times we live in. No, things here have been fairly quiet and uh, it's not quite restful, but fairly quiet anyway. Uh, the, uh, the news is tomorrow's my birthday. Yep, I rack up another one, I outlive another bunch of celebrities, and uh, I await several hundred Facebook posts celebrating the fact that I haven't died yet, so I've got that to look forward to. I've got a big um, party going on on the 22nd, so I'm getting a bunch of people together in a gastropub, and we're going to celebrate my birthday then, so that's going to be fun too, Um, and... I await my birthday present from Sally, which is going to be an enormous telescopic lens for my DSLR camera, and I'll be able to take some really cool photos and videos through that. By the way, I do know the podcast is late, and I apologize for that. Our internet on the National Broadband Network went down again, and one of the things I really need in order to do the podcast uh, to any degree of skill is access to the internet and um that's been repaired fortunately so I've now been able to get back into things and get them done Uh, as usual I've been spending way too much money on DVDs and Blu-rays but that's par for the course and I've also been watching a few things so what have I been watching a rewatch with Sal the um recent remake of Murder on the Orient Express with Kenneth Branagh, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Johnny Depp and a host of others, and I liked it the second time around as well. I liked the way that they're turning Poirot into a more human being than a lot of the previous adaptations of the work have done, where he's been a little bit of a caricature. Uh, Bruno gives it a little depth, and that wonderful moustache as well. I enjoyed it as well, so we kind of grooved on that. We picked it up on Blu-ray at a bit of a discount, and uh, it's going into the collection. And I was cruising through Netflix, and I thought I'd give... Uh, Another watch to something that I watched in 1980 and uh, it did have a significant cultural impact through the 1980s, less so now. And it's um, been kind of moved to one side by all the more recent material that people like. And that is the John Landis movie, The Blues Brothers, starring Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, Carrie Fisher and a host of others. And it stands up well. I think the humor works. I think the characters work. Uh, I think the uh, music definitely works, uh, there's some fantastic movie you got John Lee, music sorry you've got John Lee Hooker you've got Ray Charles, you've got Aretha Franklin you've got uh, the Blues Brothers band as well, you've got Cab Calloway doing Minnie the Moocher, what's not to love about it, and of course you've got some good acting in there, you've got Kathleen Freeman playing the penguin and uh, a whole bunch of other people in minor roles so yeah, it kind of worked, it, it really does hold up a lot better than a lot of the comedies from the 1980s did. Uh, If you try rewatching something like, say, Revenge of the Nerds, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Those guys are just creepy sexual predators. So I watched that. Um, I watched a thing from 1940, which I had heard nothing about, but I acquired a copy of. And it's a movie called Gas Bags by a bunch of comedians known collectively as the Crazy Gang. Flanagan and Allen are in there, uh, and a, a few other comedy teams who worked mostly on stage in the UK up until uh, 1940 when they made this film, which is about a whole bunch of guys who run an anti-aircraft gun during these first years of the war, and who by accident, while running a fish and chip shop out of, their, um, out of one of their huts, end up flying into germany and having some kind of interactions of a humorous nature with adolf hitler himself it's very kind of light comedy and there's a lot of funny wordplay in there some references you maybe you'll miss but it was interesting for a couple of reasons one a good one and one not so good i love the wordplay and the kind of anarchic humor of the movie but gasbags has a problem in that uh, the guy spent part of the time in a concentration camp, and this is before people on the West and on the Allied side knew what a concentration camp was. And so it's played for laughs, and our further knowledge of what a concentration camp is makes that part of the humour just that hard, much harder to accept. At the time, yeah, it was funny because we were making fun of Hitler and there were some... Really, quite good jokes about it, but over time, and with further knowledge, it does get a bit on the nose, which is unfortunate because they were on the right side and they were um, taking the piss out of Hitler, and you've always got to appreciate that. But the concentration camp stuff um, really didn't work. There's some Jewish, a lot of Jewish humour in there as well because some of the comedians are um, English Jews. Uh, And that kind of worked, but still, uh, I think that by 1945-46, people who made this film were maybe doing a bit of a head desk about it. Uh, I did see an Australian film from a couple of years ago as well, picked it up cheaply on disc, and it's a movie called Red Billabong, which isn't really good except for a couple of bits. It's about two brothers who own a large property in um, Queensland, west of the Gold Coast and who inherited it from their grandfather, who wants to give it back to the Indigenous community there. So one of the brother's friends, um, a whole bunch of kind of young people, one of whom's a drug dealer and uh, a bit sleazy, uh, comes for, come for a party, uh, which is a bit impromptu at the rural property, and then some weird things start happening. And it turns out that, The property is the home of a bunyip, which is an Australian mythical creature. It manifests like a giant ogre in this movie, and it kind of works well. The cool thing is you get a fight between an Aboriginal elder using a spear and a boomerang against a big monster, which is partly done through CG and partly done through stop-motion animation. And that part of the movie is real fun. It really does work well. Um, the characters and nobody, none of the characters are very likable, apart from the indigenous guy who brings a, a bit of gravitas to things. But it's worth watching just for the battle between the Bunyip and um, this Aboriginal elder, whose people's job it is to keep the Bunyip under control and um, stop it from fulfilling its wishes to take over three women and resurrect its previous brides. So, yeah, there's a bit of indigenous mythology in there. Um, There's a little bit of kind of male beefcake (laughs) in there as well. But uh, it was the first movie by the guy who made it, and I've forgotten his name. But nonetheless, it's probably worth checking out if you're into horror movies that are a little bit different. And uh, so Red Billabong, I'll keep the copy of it that I've got, but I think it's... um, Does have some uh, faults to it and part of it may have been in the casting. Uh, I did binge all 10 episodes of the new Netflix Lost in Space series and I liked it. Um, I liked Parker Posey playing the gender swap Dr. Smith. I liked Molly Parker and Toby Stevens playing the parents. The kids are good in it as well Um, and the production values are quite impressive in fact. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of liked it. I liked what they did to retcon the series and to make it work in a 21st century context. I liked the fact that the female characters are strong and in the ensemble, there are only two guys, Will Robinson. oh, actually three. There's Will Robinson, of course. There's um, John Robinson, his father, played by Toby Stevens. And there's Don West, the pilot. In this case, he's a smuggler-cum-mechanic. And the rest of the cast predominantly is female. And it really does work for that reason. Having the gender balance skewed slightly towards women uh, opened up more kind of plotting opportunities and ways of approaching the material that wouldn't have necessarily been there had it been exclusive, you know, like gender swap, gender preference to male. Um, At least half of the episodes were directed by women as well and written by women. And I'm always in favour of that because it is telling the stories which are quite familiar. I mean, there have been, what, two or three different versions of Lost in Space since Alan first brought out his version in 1965. But there's a lot worse science fiction out there than the new Lost in Space. And uh, check it out. Try to keep an open mind with it. And check it out. It does open itself up for a second season, which I hope it gets, because it's going to some interesting and very, very strange places, should that uh, second season come about. And I kind of liked it. Now, the only other thing I watched, I hadn't seen this movie for decades, literally. Um, I picked it up for $4 on Blu-ray in a pawnbroker store. In fact, a place called Cash Converters here in Australia and Australian listeners will be familiar with the franchise Cash Converters. So I went in there and I picked up a copy of Lethal Weapon, the first one with the Shane Black script, directed by Richard Donner, starring Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. And it's kind of okay, but it's kind of not. And the reason it's not is Mel Gibson overacts to fuck in this movie. And the acting, from at least my viewpoint now, draws attention to itself a little too much. Uh, Danny Glover grounds things nicely, as Roger Murta, the older of the two cops. But, um, yeah, Mel Gibson, really, his acting in this one hasn't aged well. Uh, the movie does have some other virtues. The production values are very good for 1986, I think it was. 86, 87. Um, the villain, one of the villains is played by Gary Busey before his um, mutilating car accident when you could see Busey as a good actor rather than as a punchline. But, um, yeah, it kind of didn't work for me particularly well. Other people may see that differently, but um, revisiting it, it doesn't hold up as nicely as something like Die Hard or even a future Shane Black script, The Last Boy Scout, which is one of my favourite Bruce Willis movies. I think that... um, yeah, it, it just, um, it's maybe because we've seen too many buddy cop movies since this one came out, perhaps, and at the time it came out, maybe it was more impressive, but I was watching it from 2018, and it hasn't, it's dated somewhat, so that's about all I've been watching, uh, apart from, of course, the two movies, The Strangler and The Mad Butcher, starring Victor Buono, Uh, And when I get back from this break in which I will play the trailer for the 1964 movie The Strangler starring Victor Buono as somebody based on Albert Salvo, the Boston Strangler. They kind of don't make it set in Boston in this particular one, but they took the raw idea of a serial killing Strangler and went in a quite an interesting direction with it. In this low budget movie, that surprised me with exactly how good it was.
1: About the doll in her apartment could be a fetish a fetish a fetish can be anything any non-sexual object that incites erotic feelings in this case a dog the strangler based on the terrifying crime wave that has gripped boston and spread across the country that makes number eight for the strangler yeah it looks that way starring victor buono the shock sensation of whatever happened to baby jane as the most baffling the most horrifying criminal in a decade girl wasn't raped there's was no evidence of maltreatment after death no woman is safe as long as the strangler lives and roams at will A lot of people who don't laugh at me anymore. They don't laugh at anybody. Look, please go away. I'll go. A strange, shocking being of unpredictable emotions. No one knows when or where he will strike again. Or who will be his next victim.
0: The Strangle is a 1964 American crime film. Uh, It was distributed by United Artists and it stars Victor Bueno as as the titular character, a guy called Leo Kroll. Now, most people know Victor Bueno from playing King Tut in a number of episodes of the 1966-1967 Batman TV series. A number of other people may know him from playing Mr. Schubert, the main villain, in the rather silly 1970s TV series, The Man from Atlantis. Now, Bonner was a really interesting guy for a number of reasons. He was a gourmet chef. He was a big Shakespeare fan. He also was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Academy Award in the 1962 Oscars for playing a character called Edwin Flagg in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Needless to say, he didn't win. Uh, it was won by Ed Begley Sr. playing a guy called Boss Finley in an adaptation of Tennessee William's Sweet Bird of Youth. The other nominees are kind of interesting because with the exception of Ed Begley, they're all better looking than Victor Bono. There was Telly Savalas as a guy called Feto Gomez in Birdman of Alcatraz. Omar Sharif playing Sharif in Lawrence of Arabia and Terence Stamp playing the titular character in Billy Budd. Um, yeah, when you're going up against Terence Stamp and Omar Sharif, um, you don't stand much of a chance, though Ed Begley Sr. did pick up the gong. Now, Bono, of course, was uh, an obese actor. Let's not kind of play around with that. He was six foot four. he had beautiful blue eyes, but he was a very, very large guy. In fact, he called one of his comedy albums heavy where he did kind of comical verses. I'll play one of them for you a little bit later in the podcast. He was a very intelligent guy, a very fine actor, but um, physical physically shaming actors was something that was done at the time. He wasn't the first obese actor to be, gain prominence in Hollywood, um, to whatever degree he did get prominence. You've got people like Sidney Greenstreet, Charles Lawton, of course, who shared... Both of those gentlemen also shared... Uh, the sexual proclivities of Victor Bueno who was never in the closet about his homosexuality. In fact, he was quoted as saying this, I've heard and read about actors being asked the immortal question, why have you never married? They answer with the immortal excuse, I haven't, just haven't found the right girl. Because I'm on the hefty side, no one's asked me yet. If they do, that's the answer I'll give. After all, if it was good enough for Monty Clift or Salminio... Which kind of answers the question there. Um, Apparently, from everything I've got on this, Buono did live openly with same-sex partners, and according to some sources, he was a bit of a player. So good luck to him on that. Um, (laughs) No problem with it. In fact, I saw Victor Buono's first movie role not too long ago, and that links in, in an odd way to Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, because one of the movies showing in the cinema... In The Shape of Water was The Story of Ruth, so I found a copy of it and watched it. It's a very bad B biblical epic, but um, I noticed Victor Bono in it. He was playing a guard for one of the evil um, non-Christian religious groups in the movie, and even at the age of 18, he did have that great voice, and he was quite corpulent as well. In fact, in 1959, he was um, spotted by a talent scout for Warner Brothers, playing Falstaff at a theater in Los Angeles. He'd also done *A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, the man who came to dinner, and witness for the prosecution on stage. So he started out as a stage actor at a very young age. He had the kind of mixed blessing of being able to appear much older than he was. In fact, when he died in 1982, he was only 43 years old, and he looked 60. When he was nominated for the Oscar in... 1962, he was only 24 years old. Uh, so And and of course that means that uh, he was 26 when he made the movie we're talking about first, The Strangler. And even so, he, he does look like a much older guy, which is kind of unfortunate. Though perhaps not for a character actor. Character actors who can play a range of ages are never going to be out of work, particularly if they know what they're doing. So I'd heard about The Strangler and I'd heard that he was good in it. But what I didn't know at the time was that it was an adaptation of The Boston Strangle. I didn't make that mental connection between Albert DeSalvo and the horrible crimes of him in Boston. The very good Tony Curtis movie, which I've spoken about on a previous Paleo Cinema, and this particular film. Uh, It wasn't an A-picture at all. It was made on a very small budget and on a very short shooting schedule. Uh, But it still works, and in some ways, there are moments in this one that are at least as creepy as anything you saw in The Boston Strangler with Tony Curtis, and that's quite an effort. Uh, Leo Kroll, the character played by Buono, is a mother-fixated laboratory technician who's um, obviously a beast and quite big and very creepy, and he collects dolls, girls dolls and we see him after an initial um strangling undressing a toy doll in a very creepy way now the doll seems to have stockings and bras and panties and things like that on it and we see Kroll undressing the doll um one of the creepy things is when he murders the women in this movie it's quite clear with not even a heavy reading of this film that the character is having an orgasm as he strangles these women. It's quite blatantly done without showing a bulge in the pants and a stain, and that really does make it horribly and disquietingly or uncomfortably effective. Now, there are a lot of topical resonances in this movie for the Me Too movement at the moment because. Kroll becomes enamoured of a girl called Tally who works at an um, amusement arcade store from which he wins the dolls. And his approach to Tally, when he kind of tries to chat her up in a sense, even though he doesn't have the guts to be honest about it, and uh, his physical appearance makes him kind of reluctant to approach a beautiful girl and um, ask her out on a date and things like that. So he he kind of does the creepy smiling and talking kind of thing when you even uh, somebody as clueless as the tally character kind of realises eventually what he's up to. And there's some great scenes there too where uh, he asks her out on a date and uh, tells her that she was smiling at him and being nice to him. So he thought that she was attracted to him. And she does that um, thing, which a lot of women, um, I'm seeing in the media, there's a lot of women saying that, particularly if they work in any kind of service industry, guys must take a professional level of friendliness and courtesy with somebody liking them. Uh, They make that connection between things that aren't really there. Uh, These women are doing a job. Part of their job is to be pleasant to the customers. By just being misread by certain kinds of guys who seem to think that it's something else entirely. And that is an ongoing problem in workplaces around the world. And yet we see it in this 1962 movie, which is kind of interesting how the writer of the film, Bill S. Ballinger, who was also um, a pulp novelist and uh, after a career as a journalist incorporates that into the narrative so there's a lot of stuff in this movie that really does have um, a lot of contemporary resonances as I said it's uh, surprising there are a lot of movies that do this kind of thrill kill serial killer stuff in the 60s and don't get it don't get that this is a monstrous thing for the women and don't dive into the sick entitlement that uh, these characters have Even the movie of the Boston Strangler doesn't really have DeSalvo doing this. He's more of a a straight-out predator, whereas Leo Kroll in The Strangler is something different. He's a pathetic person who's uh, sexually sadistic and physically large and and obese, Um, and he's quite unpleasant too. There are some scenes with him working as a lab technician with the black woman he's working with, and he is kind of unpleasant to her. He He's a kind of know-everything. Knows he mansplains some of the work procedures to his co-worker. And he sits there kind of arrogantly with a cigarette placed exactly in the middle of his mouth, like somebody who doesn't really smoke cigarettes. Um, it's never in the side of his mouth. It's always dead centre in his mouth, as if he's putting a barrier between him and other people when he's smoking, That's, which is kind of an interesting... Um, acting choice that's made in this film and even though uh, the Leo Kroll character is incredibly pathetic and he's awkward and really um, wrong-headed in his approach to particularly the Tally character played by a young actor called Davy Davison who's a girl in spite of her name Um, even though he is pathetic in that and he's kind of sad and um, awkward, he's never sympathetic, um, Victor Bueno never makes him a sympathetic character in this film, he's the predator and, and we're not allowed to forget that, which I think is the right choice to make there, uh, I think they made the same one in the Boston Strangler again, of course I've got to cross, keep cross-referencing these two films, because they are sort of about the same incident in crime history. Then there's a really sick relationship he has with his mother who's in a nursing home and his mother's played by an actor called Ellen Corby who played the grandmother in the Waltons TV series, a series of which I was never fond. I didn't like the cutesy family things because it was, again, like a lot of other films, um, not part of my life at the time when I was very young. And so seeing Happy Families was always a bit of a trigger for me. Um, I'm more acclimatised to it now and I understand why it's there and I kind of don't have the same reaction now that I did in the old days but um, I was never a fan, a fan of the worms and the neediness and the clinginess of Mrs. Kroll played by Ellen Corby in, in a role she played a number of times in a number of films is kind of sad and, and manipulative and pathetic at the same time And Kroll decides that what he's going to do is... His mother has a serious heart condition. So he, after being interviewed by the police and passing a polygraph test because he's a sociopath, he doesn't think he's done anything wrong, he can lie without changing any of his um, physiological reactions, he goes and visits his mother and tells her that he's killed a woman and induces a heart attack in his mother because he's just fed up with the need to visit her where what he wants to do is go to the amusement arcade and spend time with this girl who really isn't interested in him. Of course in this one you've also got a police detective a guy called Lieutenant Frank Benson played by a really interesting actor called David McLean never had a big roles or anything like that he started out he was a marine during World War II and he went on to be a cartoonist and to do a bit of advertising work and for many years he was known as the Marlboro man he did all those Marlboro commercials sitting on a horse with a Stetson on smoking cigarettes and rounding up cattle and in the 1980s when he got emphysema he he was a libertarian so he didn't want to sue um, the Marlboro company for selling a deadly product. So what he initially did was he went to um, one of the annual general meetings of the company and asked for them to back off on the advertising. He tried to do it in a rational, reasonable way. He said that he, his life and health were badly affected by smoking and he became a big anti-smoking advocate. He talked about it in public. He pushed for stronger laws um, controlling advertising but he never actually sued them. When he eventually died, his family tried to sue, um, I think it's Reynolds who were the tobacco company at the time, for um, wrongful death based on his career as the Marlboro Man and his use of cigarettes, which at the time the company was advertising to him and the time he started smoking in the 1940s, they knew that uh, these things were carcinogenic but didn't bother telling anybody else. They lost the lawsuit in the 1990s. Had it been done in a decade or two afterwards, they may well have won the lawsuit. But David McLean's family lost that lawsuit regarding um, tobacco and Marlboro. So there have been a number of Marlboro men over the years who died of uh, smoking-related illnesses. But David McLean was the first one to actually call them on it. All credit to him for that. And he's pretty good in the role of Lieutenant Benson. He's not given a lot to work with. The scripting isn't um, fantastically detailed as far as these minor characters are concerned. But he had the right look for it. And um, he does give us a little bit more than is strictly required for the character, which is kind of cool. And um, it's one of those things, again, in movies that I really like is actors who are giving more than the money's worth for their roles. And I think that David McLean in this one definitely does that. Now, the director was a guy called Bert Topper, who didn't do too much, really, but he, he was a kind of reasonable um, director and, and also is an actor as well. And he had a bit of problems with uh, Victor Buono. Uh, bueno missed his marks a few times and actually had a words with the director about it and then left the set for a whole day um, in a snit because of the argument he had with the director. But uh, there was also a scene where Kroll was supposed to strangle one of the characters after she had a shower and Victor Buono had some problems because the character was supposed to be nude and so he argued and said it was too suggestive and eventually um, the character was given a towel to wear and so they didn't kind of go for the titillation aspect of it, which I think may well have been a valid choice there. Too often in this kind of movie Where you've got a a serial killer Attacking beautiful women You can get that kind of male gaze thing Where um, titillation and nudity are used As a way of drawing things in I mean Psycho has been the biggest uh, example of that The shower scene in Psycho uh, Even though there are those fast cuts And things like that There is still a voyeuristic And a, a titillation aspect to it which this movie definitely avoids, which I kind of like. Uh, uh, There are some choices made as far as the scripting direction and acting in this film are concerned that really are on point. And uh, um, Tony Curtis, playing DeSalvo in The Boston Strangler, was playing against type for himself, and so there was an inbuilt shock failure to seeing Tony Curtis playing such an unsympathetic character in a movie but there wasn't that baggage for Victor Buono playing Kroll in this film. Um, He's unsympathetic from the start. We know he's the murderer. But there's a kind of charisma in a kind of sick, non-sexual, non-attractive way that Victor Buono brings to this character. And the kind of sweaty, oily nastiness and self-serving hatred for women and humanity in general that are part of this character take the movie out of the ordinary. Now, the Time Out film guide said the movie's compelling, tawdry exploiter and um, they acknowledged Victor Buono's contribution. And a bunch of other um, critics and also user reviews on IMDb mentioned the fact that the movie was made too realistically and... It felt just a little bit too real for an entertainment, which in a sense is kind of damning the film for being a good film in a kind of odd and unusual way. I mean, this movie polarizes audiences. You either understand what it is and like it, or you don't like it for exactly the same reasons that that kind of sense of lived-in realism that you get from it. Even though it's a small budget film and you know that the people are actors and you know Victor Buono for playing King Tut and you know him for playing Mr. Schubert in any number of other roles, up to and including playing Christopher Lloyd's father in the TV series Taxi, which was one of his last roles. Um, yeah, this movie is, is one of those kind of hidden gems in that sense. It really does have a creepiness about it. Um, Even though it's very set-bound, you still get that um, kind of sleaziness around amusement arcades. Amusement arcades are one of the classic sets and one of the classic locations for film noir in particular because they're not somewhere where nice people go to. They're somewhere where kind of fringe dwellers hang out, where guys go to meet girls, where girls go to meet guys, and where the whole... Environment is a place where people go to get conned by the people running the establishment. So in the same way that, say, a speakeasy or a nightclub or a cheap casino are there for, to rip off the punters, an amusement arcade is there for much the same reason. And so having that as a location gives that kind of sleazy street feel just by the fact of that location choice. And this is one of the things I love in low-budget filmmaking where they go, okay, well, we don't have the money to do this, we don't have the money to do that. What can we do that will get us a good effect? And this film is full of that kind of stuff, having that kind of slightly abstracted um, lab technician set that we have in the film, having the amusement arcade, having Kroll's apartment being full of quite a nasty picture of his mother above his bed, and a whole bunch of furniture which gives the impression that Kroll's living in a house that's full of his mother's old furniture. He doesn't have a way of putting his own stamp on the place where he lives. He's just got, you know, used what was left over from his mother and he hasn't changed it. So I'm definitely putting this one down as a hidden gem. It's creepy, it's eerie, it's icky. But it's a very effective little crime drama, and Victor Buono gets all credit for going to the ugly places required by the role. So I'm going to take a break. When I get back, we're going to have a look at another Strangler movie starring Victor Buono, which takes a very different look at it in a very different decade, and that is the 1971 European film The Mad Butcher, also known as The Strangler, Strangler of Vienna, also known in America as meat is meat. Footsteps
1: lurk in the dark. A beautiful girl is in danger. You are You are not getting away. To be sure, the police are going to get you. Your sister is a whore and you are... Don't talk about my sister that way. After all, this is her place. <gasps> <gasps> what ingredients go in the secret recipe of the mad butcher's sausages? Meat is meat. Mr. Lawrence? I'm quite sure. Mm-hmm.
0: But uh, I don't see where she came out.
1: Oh no, no, she didn't come out. At least not before seven o'clock when I went off duty.
0: What did you do about it?
1: Uh, come here. Yes, inspector. Where did you get these sausages? I bought the finest in Vienna. Who made this this wonderful sausage of yours? Uh, the layman, the butcher. In the future, you should inspect all sausages for buttons. A chilling story of the insane sausage maker.
0: Okay, so The Mad Butcher was a 1971 European dark comedy starring Victor Buono. In Italian, the original name was Lo Strangolatore di Vienna. And um, there's not really too many other people famous in the film, but I've really got to do a shout out to the guy who did the music, that kind of tinny piano music you heard during the trailer was by a guy called Alessandro Alessandroni, who was an Italian session musician who died a little over a year ago at the age of 92 in Rome. Uh, He did the guitar and the whistle theme for A Fistful of Dollars and for um, other Spaghetti Westerns. So he was kind of well-known as a session musician, and he also scored a whole bunch of other movies and the kind of piano music that he brings to The Mad Butcher has got a real kind of Bertolt Brecht, Thrippany Opera feel to it to my ears, and it kind of makes it work for me. I did check it out, and you can still get the DVD of this film, by the way, but it's getting crazy expensive on um, Amazon in particular, and also on eBay. There was a DVD release, but it's kind of a rarity now, and it's a collectible one, which means that people obviously like the movie. In this one, um, I think plays a guy called Otto, who's the best butcher in Vienna, according to everybody, including Otto. He gets released from mental hospital after throwing um, a chunk of liver at a lady. And he obviously had some kind of a breakdown, so he's had a few years away. When he comes back, he gets browbeaten by his wife again. She's true. She doesn't like the fact that he gained weight while he was in hospital, but he's still a a very good butcher. And we even see uh, Victor Bono cutting up some meat and you can tell that he's a gourmet chef by the way he wields a knife he's very very good at it so Otto runs Lehman's Butchers and unfortunately one night after having an argument with his wife he strangles her he's um, kind of very patient up to that point and then he strangles her I'm not advocating domestic violence I'm just telling you what's in the movie then we get the twist it's not just about a strangler it's also about a butcher So Otto decides that the only thing to do is to cut up his wife and make sausages out of her because his sausages are the best in Vienna. In fact, even the policemen buy them for the police canteen, which kind of leads to the cops not being too fond of him towards the end of the film. Meanwhile, we get an investigative journalist played by American actor, Brad Harris, who um, starts investigating the disappearance of people around the place, including Otto Lehman, the butcher's wife and it's her name she's played by a character called well an actress called Karen Field meanwhile Otto is um, perving out of his window in the evenings at a young woman undressing for bed and her name's Berta Hensel played by Franca Policello. and we do get a bit of nudity there there is a bit of nudity in this film which is a bit surprising for a Victor Buono movie you don't often associate the two Meanwhile, the investigative journalist played by Brad Harris. Now, I've got to talk about Brad Harris a bit because he does have a bit of a place in film history in a genre that I've talked about before on this podcast and of which I am very fond, and that, of course, is Eurospy. He played Captain Tom Roland in the Commissar X series. Um, all of the Commissar X movies, there was a kind of a buddy spy genre with him and an actor called Tony Kendall whose real name was not Tony Kendall, but Luciana Stella. And uh, he and Brad Harris had a, quite a long association there, playing off each other. And uh, they, they did kind of make an interesting pair as far as that uh, genre was concerned. But Brad Harris didn't start out making Eurospy movies. He started out doing things like The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet in a bit part. And he was also in a Cameron Mitchell movie called Monkey on My Back, which is kind of interesting. He was um, a muscle man in the musical version of Lil Abner in 1959 and was an extra in Ocean's Eleven, the original version of that. Then he went over to Europe and started doing Peplum movies, you know, the gladiator type films, because he was a muscly guy, even though he wasn't particularly tall. And, um, parlayed that into a career in european film his most recent film was actually 2012 a movie called shiver which i don't know give me a moment let me click through that thing which was uh, kind of a serial killer movie but um yeah so brad harris never a fantastically good actor but very very fit and um in certain kinds of roles he did quite well nonetheless he's in there as well which is uh You know, getting two American actors into any kind of European film kind of works. Now, the film was done on a crazy low budget, so the sets do reflect that as well. It was filmed at Chittichita Studios in Rome, but not one of the big sound stages, obviously. They weren't going to be doing it on the place where they made Two Weeks in Another Town or Cleopatra or anything like that. Um, It is very much set-bound, except for the fact they've got this weird thing where they actually went to Vienna to film some outdoor shots. Some of them with uh, Victor Borno with a sausage cart, where he's selling sausages around the scenic parts of Vienna, and other parts with Tony Kendall squaring Franco Policello around the Prater in uh, Vienna, doing things like going on to the enormous Ferris wheel where Harry Lyme and Holly Martins had their little conversation about cuckoo clocks. So, yeah, it's really weird because the, for the most of the film it's on small sets and then suddenly they're wandering around Vienna with um, Victor Buono wearing a funny little Tyrolean hat pushing a sausage cart around and the production values are totally different. So this, of course, goes into Sweeney Todd territory. As, as poor Otto becomes more and more homicidal, and makes more and more sausages. He also has um, a bath of sulfuric acid to get rid of the bones from the meat that he as a butcher cuts up, which is terribly convenient, really. Uh, we don't do it that way in Australia. Uh, if you want to get rid of a body in Australia, what you've got to do is have a friend who runs a pig farm, because pig farms are very good places to get rid of bodies, but don't tell anybody that I told you that. We also get some other weird, really weird things, in fact, some deeply, deeply weird stuff where Otto keeps a sex worker in his bedroom. Uh, he actually says he's going to pay her. He tears her clothing a bit. And the implication is that Otto has sex with the sex worker played by an actress called Hansi Linda. And it's has got a disconnect because I don't know how your gay art is, but I always perceived Victor Bono as a guy who's not interested in women. Of course, in real life, he wasn't. It's a bit kind of in the same way that you never see Paul Lind as a romantic lead or Rip Taylor or anybody like that. So, seeing him in a role where he's playing a heterosexual who's sleeping with a sex worker, there is a kind of cognitive dissonance about that. Yes, yeah, so you, you can believe him when he is playing Mr. Kroll, the strangler in The Strangler, because his lack of sexual attraction to women comes across in a totally different context in the strangler where he's playing a misogynistic sadist than it does in this film where he's playing basically a horny butcher who accidentally kills his wife so um yeah it's, it's one of those really weird things it's a bit like re-watching rock hudson doris day comedies where you have rock hudson playing A gay guy pretending to be a straight guy pretending to be a gay guy in Pillow Talk, for instance. You get those kind of vibes about it, and this one definitely is that. It's got nothing to do with the fact that Victor Bono was a beast, but it does come across as a little bit weird. Now, having said that, the movie is quite funny in in a tongue-in-cheek kind of cheeky way. It's a Sweeney Todd sort of story, really, with a butcher instead of a barber, in a sense. And that part of it, yeah, it's got that kind of grand guignol about it. It's not a particularly gory film. They do do a little bit where they cut from uh, somebody being strangled to Otto cutting up large chunks of very bloody beef. So you get that kind of um, thing there where they imply what's actually going on with the human bodies. You also get a bunch of bumbling police officers. Now, most of the um, characters, apart from the English-speaking actors... voices are dubbed and that's always a bit of a problem these days because it never quite sounds right and um i remember once when i was a little kid and i was first seeing things dubbed it was probably the samurai and phantom agents those japanese tv series that were brought to australia and dubbed into english and we had long conversations about why the lips didn't match up with the words coming through the speakers Now, we didn't have Wikipedia then. You couldn't just look up the word dubbing. You couldn't even do a wide word search on why people's lips don't match up with their voices in this movie. So we kind of figured it out eventually that they were dubbed in and we found out what dubbing was. And it wasn't just um, TV series either. There were a few films like The Trigon Factor, this uh, German Krimi film with Stuart Granger that I've mentioned before in the podcast. We got a lot of those kind of weird European movies as well on Saturday matinees at the cinema where the dubbing didn't work. And then, of course, there were a lot of Peplum films shown on Australian television on Sunday afternoons. So for a lot of our culture um, that we were absorbing, the popular culture at least, dubbing became something that we knew about and um, we kind of looked for. And we evaluated the movie partly at least on how well the dubbing was done, how well the words chosen mixed up with that you get that at two in uh, the green slime I saw the green slime at the cinema and you get the Japanese characters um, not speaking English of course and the English dubbing having slightly weird word structures to incorporate the way that the actors lips were moving but these days since I became very adept at reading subtitles two or three months ago um, it's <laughs> watching a dub movie is a kind of weird experience Though, with this one, because I was concentrating on Victor Bueno and Brad Harris and following through on the plot, which there isn't really a hell of a lot of. It's a fairly straightforward narrative from A to Z. But after a while, the dubbing kind of faded out of my consciousness. And I just accepted the fact that... Um, the voices didn't seem to be the actors' voices. You can kind of turn off your perception of dubbing with surprisingly little effort. And the other thing that delighted me with this film, which is a kind of movie history thing, is that there's a little conceit in this one that reminded me of one of the very first movies ever made, one of the first science fiction movies ever made, which was made around 1898 or 1900. And it was called Charcuterie Mechanique, the mechanical sausage maker. And Otto has a machine that's very much like the charcuterie mechanic. It's not quite as broadly funny as the original, where they would throw pigs in one end of a box and sausages will come out of the other. But he does have an automatic sausage machine where you can throw things into the machine, being meat, whether it's human or not, and sausages will come out of the other end. So it's um, a, it's a kind of callback to over 70 years before this film was made and one of the first comedies ever made which lasted about a minute and audiences loved it. It was remade eight or nine times by different studios because they just loved charcuterie mechanic and at the time there was no copyright on films and so different people would copy the same movie. So I love that little shout out to one of the earliest parts of film history and one of the earliest special effects bits in a film um now unlike the strangler this one's not in black and white it's in color and it kind of works well having that kind of red raw meat look does add to it uh the butcher shop is a nice little set i really like the way the butcher shop's laid out where the butcher otto is on a raised platform behind a counter and victor Bueno being about six foot four looms over the people he's giving meat to and there's a kind of nice scene they've got to establish the fact that he's the best butcher in Vienna and they do that in one of the scenes which is also a bit of character building in it where a lady an indecisive lady decides she wants some schnitzels and Otto tells her exactly how thick schnitzels have to be he cuts the meat for the schnitzels perfectly and weighs it perfectly on the scale. So you you do get the idea that he is a man with a high level of technical skill at his art, and that, of course, then allows us to follow through when he's cutting up human beings. We know he's going to do that well. We know he's going to make very, very tasty sausages because uh, the movie itself, using Victor Buono's expertise as a gourmet chef, does show us the art of making sausages and, of course, cutting up schnitzels. So there was an interesting arc to the career of Victor Buono. He started out in the bit parts and things like the story of Ruth. He had his big shot with um, whatever happened to Baby Jane, where he got the highest point of his career at a very early age, being the Academy Award nomination. Then he went into the darkness of The Strangler. And from there, he went to playing King Tut in six episodes of the Batman TV series, which gave him an enormous profile. He also played in Yellow Face, a Chinese villain in one of the Matt Helm movies, a character called Tsung Sei, which um, was better or worse than any of the other Matt Helm movies. He um, went on to do movies like this one. He did a lot of episodic TV. I'm just going to take a look at some of the TV shows in which he um, was cast. He was in um, episodes of Sea Hunt, Bourbon Street Beach, Surfside 6, The Everglades. If you ever get a chance, go to Google, sorry, go to YouTube and type in The Everglades theme song because it's got a very cool TV theme song for that. Uh, He did two episodes of Perry Mason, The Wild Wild West, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Man from Uncle, I Spy the Girl from Uncle, T.H.E. Cat, which is a very good just about lost TV series starring Robert Loja. Um He also came back again to the Wild Wild West a couple of years later. The Flying Nun, Attacks Texas Thief. Mannix, Hawaii Five O, The Odd Couple, The Tony Randall Show. TV series called Super Train, which is... Um, very um, bad. Let me say, I'm trying to remember what the Super Train is. The one I'm thinking of. No, Super Train was a one-nine-episode um, TV series from 1979 about a nuclear-powered bullet train traveling from New York to Los Angeles. It was kind of like a nuclear love boat on wheels, kind of thing. So, no nah, definitely not anything to remember. Uh, he played William H- H- Howard Taft the president in a, um, a TV series called Backstairs at the White House, which I think was a series, And one of his last roles was playing James Corwell, the father of Jim, in Taxi, the character played by Christopher Lloyd. He died at the age of 43 of a heart attack on his farm in Ojai, California. And it's amazing. If you have a look at him, he looked so much older than that. Uh, we don't all age at the same rate. And for Victor Buono, because he lost his hair early and because of his corpulence, he was playing characters really, really a lot older than he was. Give me a moment, I'm gonna check one thing out here to see what I mean. Yep, my film buff instincts are on point today. Victor Bonner played Christopher Lloyd's character's father in a couple of episodes of Taxi, as I mentioned just a moment ago. They're both the same age, and yet I've seen a still shot from that episode of Taxi And um, Victor Bono looked a lot older than he was, which is a shame. I don't like... um, I like good character actors. Recently seeing Charles Lawton in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Um, I I, I like good character actors who don't look like they're actors. And corpulent actors don't tend to look like they're actors. They're not skinny, you know, wearing tights in Shakespeare kind of guys. They're really... um, Yeah, they're like people you see in the street, in a sense. And I really like Victor Bono for that reason. He did a a drama, he did comedy, he made fun of himself, he was proud of himself and his sexuality, and we need more actors like that these days. We need um, outrageous, eccentric characters where much more than we need buff, hunky guys or, you know, svelte, beautiful women. We need, we need real people who are reflecting the people we see around us to tell us stories. So I'm going to leave you with a little bit of Victor Buono from his album Heavy and a track called You Don't Have to Be Fat to Hate Rome. It's very funny and it's a nice tribute to the man. After that, of course, you get the credits for the podcast in the style of movie credits. So thank you for listening. I'm going to leave you with Victor Buono on Italy and, in Ro- and Rome. As he says, it's the land of his fathers. So take care of yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. I'll be announcing the winners of the Patreon competitions in the next podcast. So look after yourselves and I'll be back very soon. See you later.
1: I enjoy traveling in Europe. In the past three years, I have made three films in Italy. Land of my fathers and Godfather's. My father's parents were born in Florence, which is the most gracious and noble of ladies. And then there's Bella Napoli, stretching forth her arms to meet all weary travelers. My first night in Naples, I was taken to a recital by a German soprano. She sang beautifully. But somewhere between her first selection and Thursday, she, for some perverse reason elected to include three arias from Madame Butterfly in German. <laughs> Out loud. She sang them well, but hearing Madame Butterfly sung well in German is not unlike seeing Swan Lake danced well by the San Diego Chargers. <laughs> ah, yes, and then there's Beautiful Venezia and Turino and the seductive Val d'Osta. All of Italy, most of Italy, is charming and seductive. Certainly all Italians are. With the exception of Rome and Romans. I do not like Rome. Aside from the art, it is Bakersfield with tomato sauce. LAUGHTER The traffic is unbelievably bad, especially in Vatican City where the Carabinieri wait behind pillars in hopes of finding a Presbyterian making an illegal left turn. I ran a red light and got caught by the Vatican Carabinieri. I paid my fine right in the spot, ten dollars and one Hail Mary. Of course, the laws of ancient Rome were even more, even more hard. I actually want to say the laws of ancient Rome were even harsher. Those who broke the laws of Rome were stoned upon this spot. A lot of Romans still get stoned, but few of them get caught. If any of you, by the way, are planning to spend any time in Roman hotels, I must warn you never to undress, even when bathing. Unless you are as militantly modest as the chambermaids are. Chambermaids who work in Rome are very hard to shock. They wait until you're naked, then they enter, then they knock. (laughs) I'll never forget the rapture I experienced when I left Rome for the first time. (laughs) After saying a prayer for the repose of the soul of Nero... ...who had the good sense to burn it down a long time ago... ...I went downtown removed a coin from the Trevi Fountain, and penned these thoughts on the bicep of a floating wino. Rome eternal, high and palmy, home of Caesar and salami, sun-washed city, peaceful, holy, full of art and ravioli. Buy a treasure rich and strange, count your blessings, count your chains. Marble fountains filled with coins by hopeful spinsters from Des Moines. See the lovers, a bankrupt duke and a bulging widow from Dubuque. She loves his blue eyes and white hair. He loves her blue-white solitaire. (laughs) A starving painter, a lonely matron. She needs a paint job and he needs a patron. Piazza Navona, Piazza di Spagna. Viva Bernini, viva lasagna. A marble Venus veiled in dust with a chopped-off chin and a bust bust mighty Mars the god of battle his nose is a paperweight now in Seattle power fades and glory tumbles atch it away to pizza crumble I enjoy traveling in Europe in the past three years I have made three films in Italy land of my fathers and godfathers. Mm-hmm. My father's parents were born in Florence, which is the most gracious and noble of ladies. And then there's Bella Napoli, stretching forth her arms to meet all weary travelers. My first night in Naples, I was taken to a recital by a German soprano. She sang beautifully. But somewhere between her first selection and Thursday, She, for some perverse reason, elected to include three arias from Madame Butterfly in German, (laughs) out loud. She sang them well, but hearing Madame Butterfly sung well in German is not unlike seeing Swan Lake danced well by the San Diego Chargers. (laughs) Yes, and then there's beautiful Venezia and Turino and the seductive Val d'Osta. All of Italy, most of Italy, is charming and seductive. Certainly all Italians are. With the exception of Rome and Romans. I do not like Rome. Aside from the art... It is Bakersfield with tomato sauce. (laughs) The traffic is unbelievably bad, especially in Vatican City, where the Carabinieri wait behind pillars in hopes of finding a Presbyterian making an illegal left turn. I ran a red light and got caught by the Vatican Carabinieri. I paid my fine right in the spot. Ten dollars and one Hail Mary. (laughs) Of course, the laws of ancient Rome were even more... even more hard. I actually want to say the laws of ancient Rome were even harsher. Those who broke the laws of Rome were stoned upon this spot. A lot of Romans still get stoned, but few of them get caught. (laughs) If any of you, by the way, are planning to spend any time in Roman hotels... I must warn you never to undress, even when bathing, unless you are as militantly modest as the chambermaids are. Chambermaids who work in Rome are very hard to shock. They wait until you're naked, then they enter, then they knock. (laughs) I'll never forget the rapture I experienced when I left Rome for the first time. After saying a prayer for the repose of the soul of Nero Who had the good sense to burn it down a long time ago I went downtown, removed a coin from the Trevi Fountain And penned these thoughts on the bicep of a floating wino Rome eternal, high and palmy Home of Caesar and salami Sun-washed city, peaceful, holy, full of art and ravioli <laughs> buy a treasure rich and strange count your blessings count your chains <laughs> marble fountains filled with coins by hopeful spinsters from Des Moines <laughs> see the lovers a bankrupt duke and a bulging widow from Dubuque she loves his blue eyes and white hair he loves her blue white solitaire <laughs> a starving painter a lonely matron she needs a paint job and he needs a patron Piazza Navona Piazza di Spagna Viva Bernini Viva lasagna A marble Venus veiled in dust with a chopped off chin and a busted bust Mighty Mars the god of battle His nose is a paperweight now in Seattle Power fades and glory tumbles at it away to pizza crumbles <laughs>